I want you to think of a time in your life that you went to some type of an event, a spectator event, could be a sporting event, could be uh, something else where, where you were watching something with a whole bunch of people. Think about the atmosphere, the environment where you're cheering on, there's heartbreak, there's excitement. If you think of spectator sports, really in our country, that history goes back about 150 years. I wanted to take you back in time, specifically to September 21st, 1879. Over 10,000 spectators are filled, crammed into the original Madison Square Garden in New York. The winner of what everybody was watching would take home, at that time it was $30,000, which in 1879, you translate that to today's money, it's about a million bucks. Prize money for for this one event. The police were called in because so many people were trying to get into the building. There was this mad rush, it was unsafe. So they were barricading, estimated to be tens of thousands of people that were outside the venue trying to get into the venue. So I want you to ask yourself this question, what do you think was the sport? Probably your mind goes to maybe baseball, America's pastime. Maybe some younger people would guess football or basketball, which weren't that big of a deal at that time. But I wanna show you a picture of what sport it actually was. It was called pedestrianism. That was an actual sport in 1879. And if you're wondering what was pedestrianism, why was it so exciting? What did people get to see? So people would crowd together And they would look down and watch as athletes would walk around in circles. That was it. They they weren't even fast walking. They were just walking around in circles. This specific event was called the the Great Six-Day Race. And it was people to see how far they could walk over the course of a few days. Six days straight, nonstop walking. Uh, They would take little breaks. And whoever walked the furthest over the course of that six days, they would win the million bucks. So people didn't just stay for the event. Like people were coming and going and coming and going. And 10,000 people were there almost the entire time. Even in the middle of the night, people would show up to watch people walk. Now, if you're like me, you're, you're probably wondering, how boring was it in 1879 that people would want to go and watch someone walk, and yet that's what people did. For about two decades, it was all the rage, not just in the United States of America, but also over in Europe. People were crowding in to watch some people walk around in a circle. The first trading cards, when you think of baseball cards, the actual first trading cards came from pedestrianism. There's an example of one. Man, can you imagine being an eight-year-old kid? You're like, I got his rookie card of the Walker guy. (laughs) Like, it doesn't even make sense. But by 1885, the sport was completely dead, vanished. I mean, we're talking about only a few years after thousands of people were gathering around and now it's gone like that. What happened in 1885? The bicycle was invented. They'd had that weird looking bicycle with a really big front wheel and the small back wheel. But in 1885, they came up with what we know of now as kind of the normal looking bicycle. And overnight, it killed pedestrianism. Overnight, it killed the most highly sought after ticket in town became dead. Why is that? It's because fans are fickle. 
You see, fans, by very nature of being a fan, is that you have certain expectations. You have certain requirements. You have certain terms. And you are a fan as long as your terms are being met. It's no wonder that attendance on losing sports teams is lower than the attendance on winning sports teams. Because fans say, I like to show up, but I'm only going to show up if you're doing well. I'm only going to show up if you are meeting the terms that I have for you. And that's exactly what happened on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago. That Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the crowd is going nuts. They're going crazy. They're so excited. And the reason they're so excited is because of the expectations that they had on Jesus. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it's a prophecy about the future Messiah, the future king. It's talking exactly about what would happen on Palm Sunday. It said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so just imagine the crowd. Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead, the word is spreading about all of his miracles and all of his ministry. And people have convinced themselves that Jesus is going to be the new king. He's the Messiah that the Old Testament is talking about. He's going to come. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to become king of the world. And when he does that, the Jewish people at the time were very marginalized. They were under Roman occupation. And they saw this future victory, that Jesus would give them victory. They didn't think at all about a spiritual victory. They thought about a physical victory. He's going to elevate us once again to be a world power that Jesus didn't come on their terms. And Jesus didn't meet the expectations of the crowd. You see, the crowd had certain expectations, and Jesus didn't come to fulfill their expectations. We talk a lot about how the crowd abandoned Jesus. But here's something else that's really interesting. If you read into the text, did you realize that Jesus also didn't meet the expectations of the disciples? That the crowd thought that Jesus would come and become the king, but the disciples also expected Jesus to come and be the king. They had these expectations of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus and what Jesus was going to do. And then Jesus ultimately didn't meet their expectations either. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke. We're gonna be in chapter nine. If you don't have a Bible, it's gonna be on the screen. You can also always get the notes on the app. But in Luke chapter nine, here's what it says. An argument arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So it's interesting we see throughout scripture three different times, this same argument pop up with the disciples. They start arguing over which among the disciples was the greatest. And the reason that was an argument was less about what was happening at the time and more about what would happen in the future. You see, their mindset was that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed him to be the Messiah. And so their interpretation, their understanding of the Messiah was that Jesus would become king over Israel and ultimately king over the entire earth. 
And so their debate amongst themselves was when Jesus goes into his kingdom, which one of us gets to be at his right hand? Which one of us is at his left hand? There's an interesting exchange that happens in Matthew chapter 20, where the mother of James and John, it calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. They were the, the sons of thunder. So she goes up to Jesus, they're in her house, and she asks Jesus, hey, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, can my boys, James and John, can they be at your right hand and your left hand? And can you just, just imagine how embarrassing that would have had to have been for James and John? I mean, it'd be the equivalent of your mom showing up at your workplace and saying, hey, listen, my boy or my girl, they need a promotion. They've been working real hard. And I know that they're on a team with, with 10 other people, but they're better than those people, okay? Trust me on this. And they just need to be at your right hand and your left hand. I mean, that's, that's exactly the conversation that happens in Matthew chapter 20. It's this same debate that keeps coming up over and over and over again, three different times. And so clearly behind the scenes, this is a conversation that the disciples have. Why? Because they have certain expectations. They think that by being the closest to Jesus, it would help elevate them when he entered into his kingdom. Have you ever had high expectations that didn't get met before in life? I remember in Easter when I was in college, undergraduate school, uh, this is back in the, the early 2000s, and I lived on campus at what is now called Houston Christian University, at the time it was Houston Baptist University. And on campus, there's about 3,000 students in that school, uh, less of us that lived on campus, but they did this, this kind of contest, kind of fun thing, uh, where they did an Easter egg hunt, a week-long Easter egg hunt. So most of the Easter eggs were hidden with candy inside, but they had one Easter egg that they put a special prize inside of, a, a, a little coupon to redeem this prize. And that prize was an iPod Nano. Anybody remember the iPod Nano? Anybody have an iPod Nano back in the day? Some of you were like, what is an iPod Nano if you're below the age of 20? So before we had phones that had music, we had devices that had music. And at that time, around 2003, 2004, iPod Nano, it was amazing. Like everybody wanted it. It was fresh, it was new, it was small. It could fit in the palm of your hand. So me and my roommates, we got this idea. There's about 10 of us. And we went to Walmart and we bought about 200 plastic Easter eggs. And then ironically, we went to the school computer lab and we printed out all kinds of pieces of paper that we cut into little strips and on those little pieces of paper, we put, congratulations, you won an iPod Nano. And we stuffed those 200 eggs. And about midnight, before the competition started, we went out and we spread Easter eggs all over campus. And they had told everybody, if you win, take it to this specific office. And so that next morning, we went and set up shop, pretending like we were studying near that office. Uh, not so close as to draw attention, but close enough to be able to watch the beautiful chaos that was about to happen. And so all day long, you would have people that would go into that office and they were so excited. I mean, they just had joy just dripping off them and they'd burst into the office and they'd say, I won, I won the iPod Nano. And then that poor office worker that was sitting at the front desk that day, over and over again had to tell them, I am so sorry, but that is not actually the official winning 
document. Now, I know some of you are judging me like I'm a terrible person. Um, I would say this was before I was a Christian, but I was a Christian. I was also a youth pastor though, which says a lot about that time in my life. And, and so I just watch over and over again as people go in with high hopes and expectations and then they just get crushed and they get mortified. And, and oddly, somehow the word got out that I was the one responsible for it. Now, now here's what's odd about that is there were 10 of us. I, I was not the lone culprit. It was a group project, a group activity, yet somehow it was all Kurt's fault. And so, so for, for the next couple of days, it was just like, my name was a curse word on campus. People would see me, they'd be agitated, they'd be irritated. Well, the, the whole week goes by and nobody finds the special real egg that had the coupon to win the iPod Nano. And so what they decided to do is, at the end of the week, they just decided to have a raffle. And so anybody that lived on campus, so a few hundred of us all showed up and they handed everybody out a ticket and we all hold that ticket up and they started reading out the numbers for the winning ticket. And guess who won the iPod Nano? <laughs> <laughs> and can I just tell you, it was an amazing moment when I walked forward with that winning ticket because the few hundred people there were just irate. Like I've never in my life felt unsafe in a crowd before, but that day I felt unsafe. I mean, they were, they were just jeering. You, you could hear this audible, no, not him, anybody but that guy. And I did in fact win the iPod Nano. And it was amazing, by the way, it was great at the time. But even though some of you think way lower of me, it was amazing to watch when people have really certain expectations and those expectations aren't met. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. They have these huge expectations. They said, we're fans of Jesus. We're excited for Jesus. So long as he meets these certain demands that we have and Jesus didn't come to meet their demands. And interestingly, the same thing is true for the the disciples, even the disciples who were the closest to Jesus, who heard Jesus teaching over and over and over again, somehow they also missed it. On the Passover feast, so the Thursday of Passion Week, the disciples are having an argument. This is right after Jesus gives us the gift of the Lord's Supper, right after he explains to them and he's talking about his blood pouring out and his body being broken, right after that, Here's what it says in Luke chapter 22, verse 24. The same dispute arises again. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? You see, Jesus over and over again was saying the same message. He was saying, this is what you think you want. This is what you think will elevate you. This is what you think this world is all about. And Jesus over and over again is saying, hey, I'm gonna teach you something different. I didn't come to raise you up. No, I came so that you might live a life of service. In this same setting is when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. We're not exactly sure that the order of whether this conversation happens first or 
after. But just imagine a way of Jesus as he knows that they're constantly arguing over who's gonna be the greatest. Jesus is trying to demonstrate to them that he who has every right to be the greatest came not to be served, but to serve. And, and Jesus is trying to get them to understand that if you're gonna be my follower, it means that you are being called to also serve. You see, sometimes we want the benefits of Jesus without the sacrifice. Sometimes we're fans of Jesus. We say, okay, I want Jesus, but I want Jesus on my terms. I want Jesus as long as it fits into this box. But guess what? Jesus doesn't leave us that room. Jesus throughout the New Testament gives us the calling of what it means to be his follower. And to be a follower of Jesus requires sacrifice. Look what it says in Luke chapter nine. This is a little bit after they were having that dispute amongst them about who would be the greatest. In verses 57 through 62, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my family home. Jesus said to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, let's unpack what it's talking about. The people liked the idea of following after Jesus, but then when they understood what it meant, they weren't willing to do it. Everybody had an excuse. They said, oh, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll come with you. But, but let me just go do this first. Hey, let me go take care of this first. Oh, I would, but, but I can't because of. And then Jesus gives this illustration that it's hard for us to quite grasp because it's an agrarian illustration that, that most of us have never been on a plow before. But a plow is this, this giant device that is digging into the ground uh, to create a, a hole, a line of holes uh, that they can plant something inside of. And the two ways to do that is either there's, there's an animal on the front that's, that's pulling it or just an individual would be pushing it. But, but he gives this illustration that if you're plowing, you're creating a hole into the ground, your eyes have to be focused forward on what you're doing. Why is that important? Because if you were trying to plow, it's a lot of effort. You're straining, you're pushing, you're digging into the earth. And if you were to turn back and look behind you, what would happen to that straight line? It would turn, it would go the wrong direction. And now just think about the math of it. If you have a field and you're trying to maximize that field for a harvest, how do you do the lines? How do you plant the crops? You do it in lines, right next to each other. And now imagine if you're doing lines and you start looking back and your line starts going all over the place. You're essentially ruining the field. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you wanna be my follower, it means that you are denying yourself. You're taking up your cross. You're leaving everything else behind to make me the most important thing in your life. And we talk about how Jesus dies on the cross for my sins, which is 100% true. But, but the fullness of the gospel is recognizing that Jesus died for me so that I can live for him. It's not just believing in Jesus. 
It's living for Jesus, that Jesus died for me so that I can live for him. That's the fullness of life that God has for me. And, and here's the other thing, that if we can understand that, if we can trust that, if we can believe that, then when I try and create false terms for God and say, God, I'll follow you as long as you meet my terms, it's incredibly short-sighted as to what God would want to do and will do in your life and my life. Just think of Palm Sunday. I mean, Palm Sunday totally made sense. Hey, Jesus, we're your fans. We're cheering for you because you're gonna help us out here on this earth. You're gonna become king over this whole nation, king over the whole land. And if Jesus would have fulfilled their expectations, then 2,000 years later, no one would be talking about Jesus. But Jesus fortunately didn't come for their terms. He came for his own. And Jesus said, instead of just dying, or excuse me, instead of just living to be your earthly king, I'm going to do something more radically different. I'm gonna die on the cross for you so that I can be your spiritual king. I'm not gonna give you victory here in this life, Israel. No, I'm gonna give victory of a spiritual life, a connection to God that you cannot accomplish by yourself. And if he would have done exactly what they wanted, it would have been so short-sighted and so limited. And yet, instead, what he does changes everything. That Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection on Sunday radically changes the potential for my life and your life, not, this on, not just on this earth, but also for all of eternity. But for me to experience the fullness of what God has for me, I can't just be a fan of God, wanting him on my terms. I have to be a follower of God. This week is called Passion Week. And the word passion, we, we, we kind of identify passion as all these different things in our culture. So we think of passion as romance, or we think of passion as rooting for a sports team. Uh, but the etymology of the word passion means suffering, suffering. And so really the truth behind Passion Sunday is that it, it kicks off a week where we remember that Jesus suffered and died for our sins. Part of being a follower of Jesus is recognizing the pain that he experienced on the cross and realizing that my sin is the reason that he had to suffer, that I deserved that. If I'm gonna be a true follower of Jesus, I need to hate the sin of my life. I can't be a follower of Jesus and have unrepentant sin that I just ignore. That I say, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. No, to be a follower of Jesus is to say, I recognize what Jesus did for me and it breaks my heart, the sin I've had in my life. And I'm gonna do everything to turn and run away from that sin. That's one of the gifts of the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist. Uh, that Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper to his disciples, he's giving them something so that they would never forget the death that he suffered and paid on the cross. Sometimes we have a temptation to jump past Good Friday and focus on Easter. Because Easter is the fun stuff, the celebration stuff, that he has risen, and that's all true. But we can't jump past what Jesus asks us to remember, and that is the suffering that he experienced that just before they were fighting over who would be the, the most important, Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper. Here's what he says. He says, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table 
and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus wasn't ever hiding the fact of where he was headed. They just didn't want to hear it. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, here's what's so fascinating about this is he gives them this beautiful gift. He explains his body broken, his blood poured out. And then right after this is when they start debating amongst themselves, who's gonna be the greatest. And what's really interesting about the passion narrative is that we talk a lot about how Peter denies Christ, but at the cross, we only find one of the disciples, John. None of the rest are there. And so somehow those that were the closest to him, when it all came down to it, ended up leaving, scattering, going away. Now they came back, but on the night that Jesus dies, John's the only one that was there. Hey, here's what it makes me think. This makes me think of how easy it is for, for someone to be in the presence of Jesus and hear the teaching of Jesus, talk about communion, talk about Lord's Supper, and yet miss what it really means. And I think so often that happens to us inside the church. That I can go through the motions of Lord's Supper, go through the motions of communion without really experiencing what it truly means. And so in just a moment, we're gonna take communion together as a congregation. Now, if you've never taken communion with us, we do it a little bit different. Uh, we have tables at the front here. We've got tables in the middle. We've got tables at the back. Uh, if you're in the balcony, there are tables in the back. Uh, so the goal for you is gonna be to find the closest table to you, which might not necessarily be the one in front of you. It might be the one behind you. But you'll go get into a line and we've got elders and staff that will give you the elements. And then you'll take those elements, go back to your seat, and then I will come back up and we will all participate together in the Lord's Supper. Uh, but, but here's the challenge I have for you. Why do we take Lord's Supper? Oh, we take it to remember. What are we remembering? Remembering the death on the cross. We're remembering that Jesus' body was broken. Remembering that Jesus' blood was poured out. And one of the most challenging things is to take something sacred and holy like communion and fight off the temptation to make it trite. Then when we do the same things over and over and over again, it's easy to go through the motions. And yet the New Testament challenges us not to do that, challenges us to truly remember. And so what does it mean to remember? Now first, it's to, to recognize the depth of my sins the payment that he took on my behalf for my sins. And so that's why we always say, we, we always wanna to go to the Lord's table with clean hands. What does that mean? That means that if you have unrepentant sin in your life, before you participate in communion, before you come up and get the elements, that you need to spend some time in prayer and say, God, forgive me. God, I'm sorry for the sin in my life. Help me turn away. And probably there's some people in this room right now that you know of a sin in your life that is a struggle. 
Maybe it's a sin that's just a baby sin that you're headed down a certain path, or maybe it's a sin and addiction that has been there for a really, really long time. And can I tell you, if you're gonna be a follower of Jesus, you can't hold on to unrepentant sin. It's the definition of being at the plow and looking back. You gotta let it go. And so spend some time in prayer. Have a heavy heart for the sin in your life. Say, God, please forgive me. And we'll give you a chance at the very end, if you've got some unrepentant sin that you wanna to talk to somebody about at Trailhead to pray with some people. But, but right now, just by yourself with God, ask for forgiveness. And then come take the elements and, and don't just go through the motions, but as you hold them, prayerfully consider what they represent, that Jesus died for you. His body broken for you, his blood poured out for you. It's a heavy thing. Now, if you are a Christian, whether you're a member of our church or not, we would invite you to participate in communion with us. If you're not a Christian, if you say, hey, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't follow after Jesus, we would ask you not to take communion with us, which I know that sounds odd, but here's why. Uh, we really believe that it's holy. We really believe that it's a sacred thing of what it means and what it represents. And if it doesn't mean that to you, uh, then, then we would say, hey, that's totally fine. We're glad that you're here. But this would really just be something that's a, a family moment for the family. Uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray. And as soon as I pray, we're gonna start worshiping God together. And dear that tongue, first you get your heart right. And once your heart is right, you come, receive the elements, go back to your seat. We'll participate together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we go to your table, we will go with heavy hearts for the sin that we have in our lives. Help us to repent from those things. God, help us to not just be fans of you that comes with certain false expectations and certain terms, Lord, instead help us to be followers where we leave everything behind to boldly pursue you and put you first. God, thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you for the gift of communion. God, help us to remember. Help us to remember. It's in the name of Lord Jesus we pray, amen.